Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. I've got such a treat for your ears. This week, I'm in conversation with Charmaine Lovegrove, the remarkable founder and managing director of Dialogue Books. She speaks about being homeless at the age of 16 and overcoming dyslexia to becoming an award-winning editor and publisher, despite the challenging context she navigated. She also shares incredible advice for aspiring individuals like her younger selves. And trust me, you do not want to miss her secret to keeping her creative cup full. Listen up and I look forward to hearing what you think. Thank you so much for joining me on Extraordinary Creatives this morning, Charmaine. It's so exciting to be with you. So for our audience, could I ask you to give us a short introduction as to who you are and where, you, where you're coming from today? Hi. Um, so thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting um, to even think about being an extraordinary creative. Um, oh. So I'm Charmaine Lovegrove and I'm the managing director of Dialogue. And Dialogue is a um, division at Hachette. It's one of 12 divisions um, that we have. And we are the newest division and we've done something pretty extraordinary. We've, um, we were an imprint, part of Little Brown, which is the biggest division in corporate publishing, part of Hachette. And we moved out of um, Little Brown where we were around 14 other imprints and we created our own division um, and we now have um, imprints, literary, dialogue books, renegade, commercial and um, that's the first time that that's happened in corporate publishing. So it means I'm on the board um, of Hachette which is the second biggest publishing house globally and I do all of this from um, my home in Berlin and also from my um, office in London. Amazing. And for those people listening on the podcast, Charmaine is um, sat in front of the most beautiful bookcase ever. And uh, just for, for my delight, would you mind introducing us to some of your publications that you've actually released on the shelf? Because some of you will be familiar with Charmaine's work. If you weren't aware of the person behind the book, you may well have seen and read these books. Right. So we've got The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. The most um, incredible book that I gift to everybody. Um, we've got one coming out in January called um, Winter Animals by Ashani Lewis. Um, if you like this, um, The Secret History by Donna Tart and White Lotus, this is for you. Then we've got Post Traumatic by Chantal V. Johnson. Um, it's about a young Afro-Latino woman who is in a um, who's a lawyer and um, she works in a psychiatric ward, but her life starts to spiral out of control. Um, and it's about her journey. And as traumatic as that sounds, the post-trauma is how she's kind of coming through. And I think we can all learn from that. Giving Back is by Derek A. Bardwell. Um, it's all about philanthropy and um, sort of modern British philanthropy charities. How do they work? How can we give back? Um, and also Derek's really inspirational story. A Thousand Calls of Fear, um, Olivia Wenzel, that was um, um, actually translated from German. And it's about an Afro-Deutsch woman who is figuring out her identity and it's very experimental. Then we've got The Shoulders, it's Black History Month. Um, so we've got The Shoulders We Stand On by Preeti Dillon, which tells us about um, Black and Asian um, uprisings and protests and movements in Britain between the 60s and the 80s. 
And then we've got the secret diaries of Charles Ignacio, Ignacio Sancho. Um, and that's by Patterson Joseph, um, the actor. So he's also a brilliant writer. And it's a story, it's a retelling. Um, I love biographical, um, I love biographical fiction, the like reimagining, retelling of somebody's lives. And Sancho lived in London during Regency London. Um, so not like um, Bridgerton, um, but um and he really fought to be the first black man to get the vote and also to um, first black person to be published in the UK. And it's just an absolute romp of a story. So, yeah, mm. those are just some books that I have um, published recently. Amazing. And so for I can see what connects those. But from your point of view, what would you say are the connecting threads from the oh, books what, that what you back and the authors that you back and publish? So... I'm really obsessed with inclusion. I'm really obsessed with everybody being at the table and um, then kind of creating a space for equity where we are all trying to um, fulfill our potential, essentially. And that fulfillment of potential um, can happen when you see other people um, with um, stories that are similar. And a lot of those stories tend to be unheard. Um, so the unheard voices, the kind of uniqueness of each of those stories, you can tell like they might all have things like race and class or um, gender, sexuality um, interwoven in them, but they're all actually really, really unique um, narratives and it just kind of shows you the breadth that we've been kind of missing historically. And I'm really excited to be part of changing that. Such an inspiring uh, range of creatives that you work with. And uh, we're going to dig in a little bit more in terms of how you help those people to, to publish books a, a little bit later in the episode. But I wonder if we could just whiz back first, because that mission that you spoke of, you know, that vision and those values that you hold dear and that is really evident in everything you commit to, Charmaine. Could you tell us where that stems from? Where where does that vision and mission come from? So I started reading really young and I suppose I was quite a precocious reader. Like I was reading works that were probably older than, you know, my reading age, but I was just really obsessed with stories like by people like um, Dr. Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. And I think also growing up in a very multicultural London, um, that was also kind of quite segregated. So I'm from Battersea. And part of Battersea is either sort of white and very middle class. And then the other side of it is very um um, black and working class. And it was kind of literally divided by the tracks of Clapham Junction. And just sort of seeing, hearing different accents and understanding from a very young age that if, you know, coming from the side that I came from, then I had opportunities because I was middle class and had a very sort of British, like English um, accent, whereas people who had a different accent, which is still a British accent and is still just as valid, um, were not kind of, you know, their schools or they weren't kind of get at school, they weren't really given the opportunity to know what more they could do or what they can achieve. And that it felt like depending on where you were from, your path is sort of determined. And I think maybe living in a country of a monarchy, that mm. also feels like, you know, quite a uh, that's quite a profound thing to realize from quite a young age. Well, why is she the queen? Oh, because she was born into this family. And then, but you know, what does, what do they do that's special or different? And what if they're not very good at it, even if <laughs> it turns out that some of them weren't very good at it. Right. Um, and so 
it just really got me thinking about this thing of how you're born into something and you're born into a place and then how you're treated. And of course, having grandparents who are from the Windrush generation, who were some of the best and brightest of um, of Jamaica that were leaving, people that were able to save money um, and afford to leave, like my grandma and her siblings, her four siblings came over by, um, they flew over, they came by a plane, they didn't get on the boat. Like people, there were people from really different backgrounds that were coming, but then they were all treated as if they were worthless. And actually they came to help rebuild post-war Britain. And it was a really thankless task. And then not only did they rebuild um, post-war Britain, but they also created an entire microcosm of a culture that heavily influences um, British language, British culture, our foods, like everything. There's nothing that's not influenced by the Caribbean. And so the idea that in a really positive way, so the idea that, you know, where you were born or how you were born or who you were born to was so kind of, kind of determined your outcomes to such a degree, um, for me is egregious. And so what I can do is find stories and writers and champion those stories and writers and 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 get to that pace of equity mm, so inspiring i'm thinking so many things um and i resonate with your story and um for listeners who who haven't met me yet or don't know much about me would know um my family are my living family are a mix of Jamaican and Nigerian. And so I grew up with my uncle who came from Jamaica at the age of 12 into this country in the Midlands. So we grew up um, understanding the context was very different for most of my family in terms of what they experienced and what they continue to experience. So I really resonate with what you're saying in terms of the Windrush generation and the impact that has on subsequent generations, actually. So I'm curious, Charmaine, in terms of your grandparents came to this country and um, and what the experience was like for the next generation, as in your parents. So what, what yeah. did they do and how did that influence your understanding? So again, it was um, it was really tough. And when I think about being a child of immigrant parents who didn't really realize they were immigrants, like because that's the really interesting thing, right? Like if it wasn't for race, then yes, accent, but like you wouldn't, they wouldn't, they just wouldn't have been treated differently. So it was really about like the literally the color of their skin, because you know, they grew up speaking English. Um, they are, um, as a first language, as an only language, in fact, um, you know, none of the other languages of enslaved peoples or, um, native Jamaicans survived and they, and it, you know, Patois is a, almost like a dialect and Jamaican is an accent. And so, you know, they're educated in a British system because it was colonized. Like they went through 450 years of, of, um, and being enslaved peoples, and 250 years of colonialism, which means that actually, in some ways, like when you go to Jamaica, they are more, more, more um, English than the British. You know, they just do everything properly mm-hmm. uh, in the way that we understand. And so I think it was really challenging then for my family, like my my mom and my dad and my uncles and aunts and cousins, 
because at school they were just kind of not they were treated as if they didn't understand that they were born in Britain and English is their first language at home and as if they just weren't capable and whatever one black person did then it meant that everybody was tarred with the same brush so so then it kind of really kind of ghettoized people's experiences and um and opportunities and so it was really hard and then some things become like self-fulfilling prophecies mm. so if you tell a whole generation of people that all you're going to do is have kids really young and you know then they're going to have kids really young so my parents had me at 18 mm-hmm. um alongside many of their other friends i've got lots of friends who are the same age as me who whose parents had them at the same age so we have like generations of friend of friendships and it was really hostile. Like my my stepdad often would talk to me about growing up in New Cross and what it was being what it was like um, being chased by Millwall fans. Mm. And it's so funny. Like my family are big Arsenal supporters, and people often ask me, like, "Well, you're from South London. Why do you support Arsenal?" And I'm like, one, we're originally from South London, and two, you know, the other clubs, Chelsea, Millwall, they they, they were really really racist, and Arsenal yeah. wasn't. And so it was somewhere that my uncle who's now in his 80s could go and it's like my uncles who were in their 50s and 60s could go and so you know finding safe places was really important um and so that's how the culture really formed you know Mm. like a lot of dancers a lot of getting together because they weren't welcomed in in white space predominantly white space they weren't welcomed in the pub Um, and so the music and so that's like the backdrop of my life was like conversations a lot of home a lot of music a lot of house parties going to house parties with my mum and dad and then they would leave us kids in the room (laughs) I always remember in winter you know black Londoners are very glamorous and so you know big fur coats and we would hide under them and play hide and seek. And then we'd go out and see, and you just see people like dancing and there'd be like a sound system. And it was just an amazing way of growing up, but it was tough. And what was really tough for them to make their mark. And it was tough for them to try and make a difference without being judged. And it was just a very harsh society for them to grow up in. Mm. And, and And so they were young parents, um, that were raising you and figuring this stuff out and just conscious now you're older what do you think that you inherited for the better and for the worse maybe I think like this level of resilience you know Mm. like this resilience is huge my resilience my personal resilience I know people don't like that word or think it's like a lot or it's a burden but it it's just a fact I'm an incredibly resilient person I can take on a lot um because I'm really aware and very cognizant of like whatever I'm going through was never as hard as my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents and like those that came before me, you know, like the book is called the shoulders we stand on and, Mm. and they fought. And I think it's really important. I don't really think that white people necessarily understand that when we talk about things like privilege, like it's a huge, it's just used to kind of loosely. Yeah. And it's like, I don't believe that you're just sort of privileged for being white. I do think that there are white people who are very entitled and just sort of believe that the world should just 
work in the way that they want it to and that they should have access to things and et cetera. And I think that's entitlement. It's such a huge privilege to be a black woman and to recognize that my ancestors fought to be here. Mm. You know, I wouldn't be here unless they, that there were 22 million enslaved peoples, like 22 million and Mm. um, 12 million of those people were killed, murdered, brutalized. And so the statistics of then the fact that they then had to still find time to like make children amongst the mm. brutality and then kept going and kept going and kept going until all the way to here. It's like a huge, like, listen, I was meant to be here. We were meant to be here. Like yeah. we were absolutely supposed to be here because that level of brutality is uh is just so is so horrific. And I started thinking about that the more I spoke to my Jewish friends and understood like how it worked with like the mother being the person that hands it down and how just like every single Jewish person that is born is like sacred. It's like sacred, you know, because it's like they could have not been here. And that's how I feel about being black. And so when people talk to me about privilege, I'm like, it's a huge privilege to have come from all of those people because each of them had to have survived. Yeah. They all had to survive for me to get here. And so, you know, it wasn't possible. And then on top of that, I have my uncle Len Garrison, who founded the Black Cultural Archives, who was an activist. He actually died of a heart attack in a meeting at the Black Cultural Archives, which is a um, which is a um, kind of cultural heritage um, space in London, in Brixton and Windrush Square um, um, for black british history and culture and it's an amazing amazing place um and i work really closely with them um Mm. i'm on the board and it's a really just incredible um opportunity for us to have a better understanding of the of black history through our archives through what we were doing and what we've said and um our celebrations and our oral histories and so growing up with an activist you know, as an uncle also, and growing up in the back, you know, also helped. And then growing up in the backdrop of, I was born in April, 1981, which is the month and year of the Brixton riots. Like I was born, I was literally born in South London in the backdrop of the riots. So for me, it's like that fight for space to be recognized and get to an equitable place has been, I'm just, I'm just the next one. <laughs> I'm just oh, the next one. There's so much in there, Charmaine. There's, uh, just really understanding that, you know, I got goosebumps when you were talking about privilege and really understanding, you know, whose shoulders you stand on, which is fantastic to to give your ancestors credit and also to celebrate what they went through to, to create an opportunity. And I can see that you have put that to good use. You know, you make a career of lifting others up and making space and giving voice to others. I'm also conscious that that's occasionally a challenge to carry that as a responsibility. And I wonder if you could speak to to what does that mean for you now as a as an elder? As an elder. Yeah. Okay. I mean, part of the question that I didn't answer properly was like, what does that feel like now? And, you know, now I am actually 
an immigrant mom. You know, I live in Germany and um, it's a different language and it's a different culture. And my children were are raised here. I have a 12 year old and two year old twins. And I really feel it like I'm an immigrant mom. And because I'm part of like an international elite here does not mean that I'm not I'm not an immigrant. Um, and I realized that I didn't actually grow up in an immigrant household. I grew up in an ethnic minority household, but not an immigrant household. So my parents, I didn't have to translate anything to my parents. I didn't, mm. you know, they were born there. We went to schools around the corner from each other. And everything that I do here with my children is new. So I really kind of understand like the difference and of of those experiences. And so don't take that for granted and actually have to kind of talk about them because there's an assumption that you grew up like in an immigrant family. And what does that mean? And I'm like, well, there's a difference. Again, there's always the diversion of ideas. Mm. So the difference between um, ethnic minority and immigrant, like is actually quite big because there's many second and third generation people, um, you know, third and fourth generation people from other cultures. And I'm I'm very cognizant of that as well. And then I think, you know, look, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to be somebody who is such a multicultural, inclusive person. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really difficult to be able to use your voice and to be authentic, but for to be living in a world where often like the lack of authenticity is is the thing that people see more than anything else. And so for people to believe that you are really you and that your intentions are right mm. um, or what they say that they are. And 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 so for me, it's like it just be it could become really noisy, like when people don't really know me, but when they meet me or when they see me or they hear me talk, then they're like, OK, we get it. Like it's we get it. We get it. We get it. But on that journey then, you know, I do work in a really, publishing is a very, um, let's say like it, it's, a, it's an industry that really loves a story. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. And we love stories and books and we also love stories about people, of course. So it's very gossipy um, and there's a lot of assumptions and people just say stuff and um, without really knowing you, um, because that's what's interesting. And it's, it's, and so it's hard to kind of, when I started the imprint, for example, people would say to my CEO that I was really flighty um, or they would say I was never going to last. I'd last six months. And I, you know, they were just kind of very negative about, I mean, and why they would go to my CEO and say that after the announcement is just beyond me. Yeah. Like why would you ruin somebody else's chances because of your opinion, which is not impactful. Like you're neither like just sit back and watch. Do you know? Like in the <laughs> yeah. do anyway. Like you know. But if if that if it were to ruin my chances or put a seed of doubt into somebody's head, like why is that? Why is that the energy that you're carrying into the world? And so that was really hard. You know, so many people being like, "Well, you're here, then you have to prove yourself." Mm. Um, and really having that support from my CEO David Shelley and Charlie King, the um, managing director of Little Brown. And it just being like a really big challenge. Yeah. <laughs> just a really big challenge because also you don't necessarily know what you're doing because you've never done it before. And Who does? We're all making it up, right? We're all making it up as we go along. Mm. And then the difference of when we created the division, which 
then everybody was like, we're so proud of you. It's amazing. We always knew you could do it. And da, da, da. And I was like, no, but now I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> now I'm not sure. This was really big. This was really scary. Uh, what have I done? Careful what you wish for. But um, it was just so interesting, the kind of difference of response of one being so, the smaller thing being, and the new thing being really negative. And then like, you know, we sold... As a lone publisher with a third of an assistant, I published 48 books in five years and sold over a million copies, Wow! which is how I got into this next role of being an MD. And we're going to publish a lot more books and sell many, many more copies. And it's going to be amazing. It already is amazing. Um, But um, having that like difference in, in within five years and, you know, a lot of that is not just the work, the books, of course, that helps. Of course, Britt Bennett, um, Rainbow Milk by Mendes, like, you know, of course, these books that people really have gravitated to really help. But actually, it was like a lot of the work that I had to do of like winning hearts and minds, like, you know, just getting to see like, this is who I am. And this is what I'm about without being too PRE, without being, without doing too much, without stepping on anyone's toes, without like, it was a careful navigation that wasn't always um, obvious to me. Um, But I did have an intention of, of, of succeeding. Right. And connecting with people. And so that was like a really big and continues to be a challenge, but not in the, not in the same way. I love the fact that you speak about intentionality and be wanting to be intentionally successful. I think I'd love to put a pin in that and come back to it. Cause I think as a woman, I think it's incredibly important for our listeners to know that it's okay to say that you want to succeed oh, and, yeah. and to help others succeed and oh, that yeah. you know how to make it happen. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, do we even have to put a pin on it? Like, can we not just <laughs> yeah, let's right do now? it? I mean, let's do it. You know, so you might have noticed that there's a way that I speak, which is I'm basically creating a, like a different narrative. So I don't talk about equality because I don't want to be over there. I don't want to be like the same. I don't believe that we're trying to be the same. I want us to be equitable, right? Like I want us to reach our own potential as individuals. I don't talk about diversity because that's around divided, divorce and sort of difference. And actually I talk about inclusion because then everybody is part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is another thing with like, so another one could be, um, there's a difference between being competitive and being ambitious. Right. Like I'm hugely ambitious. I'm hugely ambitious. Turns out, turns out I didn't realize um, to what extent, but, and there's a cost. There have been personal costs to that. Um, But there's been many, many, many more gains. But what I'm not is competitive. Yes. I can see what other people are doing and I champion what other people are doing. Sometimes I think that's not so good. There's a better way of doing it, but that's because I'm thinking and learning and being like, I'm a critical thinker, right? Mm. So I'm able to kind of make that analysis and make those judgments, but with no harm. So, but listen, you slay in your lane, you go for that, like you equitable, we're not the same person. So I'm not expecting you to achieve what I can achieve. And I'm not expecting myself to achieve what you've achieved. What I can do is be like, I'm here. I can lift you up. I can salute you. I can, you know, 
I'm, yeah. I'm here for brilliance. I'm here for your brilliance as long as it's brilliant, right? Yeah, I love <laughs> that. Do you know, I speak all the time about the fact that there's enough piece of the pie to go round. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you is because obviously I love basking in the glow of your brilliance is so inspiring, but also because it's absolutely about helping creatives to be their very best version of themselves. And to do that, we have to be the best version of ourselves. So we have to keep learning and growing and putting ourselves in the stretch space. And that means getting comfortable with feeling uncomfortable putting yeah. yourself into situations like you said about being in this MD role where you're like, holy shit, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, and yeah. figuring it out as you go. But knowing that you've got the capacity and the resilience and you will figure it out because you've figured shit out before. But I, there's something about that um, taking up space because you were talking about the challenges in the past where you've been in approving space. Mm -hmm. in a justifying space and how I've witnessed so many gorgeous creatives that I work with. When we're in that space, that's not good for our soul. You know, it's not good. Like I'm not asking anybody I know and love to show up to justify who the hell they are. You know, that actually when a creative needs to be brilliant, they need to be accepted and loved and nurtured and cherished for who they are. And that means the people that support them on their way also need to be respected and cared for. And so I'm curious, Charmaine, you know, who cares for you at the <laughs> top? Who who gives you the love and the uh, recognition that you, like we all need as humans? Yeah, I mean, I have like incredible friends. Um, I have my family and I have um I have other really you know in the in that friendship mix I have other really high achieving especially women and some men as well mm -hmm. so like I have my friend Yamin Chowdhury who runs Hackney Empire I have Elizabeth Day um who's a broadcaster and writer um I have um Kenya Hunt who's the editor of Elle magazine um, it's, you know, I have some really, I have Bernadine Varisto and mm. I have, um, Sarah Collins and like, I just have a lot of writers around me and I have just people who are just like, I can see you. Yes. Uh, and then of course I have my team, right. And we're really, really close. Like my head of marketing, Emily and Millie, um, head of um, publicity, Christina, who runs our, um, commercial imprint Hannah who who works with me on dialogue books and um, leads on our literary imprint they're just all really amazing from our editorial assistant Adrian to Alexa and Eleanor like they're just really really great people and then the business itself you know Charlie King who's our executive chair um, who still runs Little Brown of course and then David Shelley our CEO and then like count like the rest of the board. I mean, in, in terms of work, then when I go into the office, like I'm in, I'm, I've, I'm now in like a very, very safe space. Mm. And, and, and that's because I, I have this thing of when I got back to work after having the twins of um, talking to my CEO and he's like, how, how are you going to approach this? And I was like, I'm going to be really professionally vulnerable. And he was like, okay, tell me more. And I was like, well, 
I can't remember how to do my old job because I was a publisher and I've just had twins and it's been 14 months. Um, and I do not know how to do this new job because I've never done it before. Um, and so I'm just going to be really honest with that about that. And I'm going to say, look, I've done many things I've never done before. Um, I've almost forgotten everything that I've learned and then relearned it again in different ways um, in my different businesses. Um, but we're just on this journey and it's absolutely amazing. And if I don't remember something, then please don't be like, I'm more junior to you. So I'm not going to tell you like, please tell me because it helps, you know? Yeah. And if I'm doing something in a way that you think is not helpful to the business, not helpful to our authors, not helpful um, to selling um, as many copies of our books as possible, then let me know. And that sort of continue. Cause I think the thing that happens is that the, the higher you reach in your career, the less criticism you get and the lesser feedback you get. And I don't, I want to be in like a feedback loop. I want people to tell me, um, you know, how I'm, how I'm doing or if I could be doing something differently or better um, because that's the only way I learn. And so being very open about that from coming back to work and leading the company where I am overall responsible for this company. Like that's really clear to me. Like it is my responsibility but I'm not the only person that does the work. And so, you know, everybody is doing a lot of work all of the time to make it mm. work. And so for that reason, we can be more like, because we're small and because for various different reasons, and because of my personality, we can be a bit more flat level in terms of how the hierarchy works, but they also have that kind of flexibility and freedom because they know the buck stops with me. Yes. And I, I think love I that. I love the fact that you're modeling psychological safety as a leader, that you're modeling it because you are demonstrating that in order to grow and to get better, you need some feedback that is a nurturing feedback. So what works? How could I do this better? That kind of thing, where, which is different from critical feedback, where someone is just kind of identifying what you're not so great at. You know, that's not helpful to anybody in order for them to thrive. So you're giving your team permission to come on that journey with you, in which case they will be more open to you when they need support or when they want to learn something new. And they will most likely stretch with you and actually achieve more than they thought was possible because of that, as you are. Yeah. 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 I hope so. And I can see it and like, they're amazing. And, you know, recently I spoke to my CEO and he was like, oh yeah, your whole team are new at their jobs. Everybody's jumped up two or three levels. And like, that's tough, you know, because also in, you know, everyone wants to earn more money. Everybody wants to have more opportunity. So uh, uh, there is no point where people aren't like, okay, I'm here and this is fine. You know, (laughs) really brilliant people. They're not Mm. like that. So how do you, how do you balance that kind of learning with growth, with newness? Like it's just a constant, it's a constant with ambition, right? It's a constant thing. And so by taking the responsibility really actively, by taking the responsibility actively, then we get into a situation where where I'm able to, I'm able to give them a huge amount of space and that they're able to know that things can go wrong and that I'm absolutely going to pick it up with them and yeah. we're going to figure it out together and that there's not going to be any judgment and there's it's 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 totally fine to get things wrong 
and remembering, you know, having some perspective, like what is it that we do? We make books and, you know, it's challenging and it's complicated, but it's, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. Like things can happen and things can be rectified and it's okay. Even if mm. it feels feel like that in some moments. Yeah. Again, that sort of that safety to fail forward together. Yeah. I really love that. So in this new role, what's the biggest stretch for you? Um, the biggest stretch for me is to like not lose sight of the thing that I love the most, which is like the active publishing and editing. Um, most people who do my role um, are MDs and really are with like the PL and really with the spreadsheets and really kind of managing the business. Mm. Whereas for me, it's really important that I'm actively publishing. Um, I'm not sure that I could do that. So on one hand, it's really amazing to live in Berlin and to have a lot of space. So I have a lot of time because I'm not in the office. I'm not really present physically. Um, so then it gives me a lot, like after this, I can go and do some editing, for example, for the rest of the day, mm. um, because I just cancelled our creative meeting. So I can do that, you know, like that's fine. And we'd say we don't have that many meetings um, for that reason. Um and so, but on the other hand, it's difficult because I have to go back and forth a lot, you know, yeah. it's like, I would just, I love having so much time at home. I love having time with my family so much. Um, it means a lot to me. I really means a lot to me to be able to, um, um, to work from home, um, and to edit, to be really as close to the text. And I'm a very deep and involved reader. And so, um, having these ideas of how to make a book, um, really fly is like it's just you know I love it so much it's the thing that I feel the most passionate about in my job I don't often get to talk about it because I have such a um sort of valued based business and we're such a purposeful based business like everything we do is with purpose and our values so often those things are the thing that kind of gets upheld but actually like a day-to-day just editorially is like my big thing and um and that's why I want to live away Brilliant. I wonder if we could speak about that a little bit more because I'd love to understand with the listeners um your creative voice in the editorial process. And I wonder, is there an example, you don't have to give names, but could you give us an example of how your creativity has helped uh, bring something to fruition differently? I can talk about Rainbow Milk and when Mendes um, brought that to me. So um, we'd known each other. We'd partied together in London, in all of the queer clubs in Shoreditch and like the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and um, Mendes had written a memoir and um, it was so interesting. You know, it was really about their experience of being um, of being a young person trying to deal with um, in a Jehovah Witness household and, um, and then being excommunicated because they're gay. And it was just really tough, you know, and then coming to London and then kind of getting into sex work. And I was like, I just don't really think that you're screaming enough at the people you need to screw. I think you're kind of holding back because they're still alive and they're still important to you. And even if you have a challenging relationship, you don't want to make it bad forever. You don't want it to be irrevocably broken. So 
myself and another editor, um, Don Wakeford, because I just, it was my, my first week. And so we just got talking about it. And then it was like, what if we made it into fiction? So we took that to Mendes and mm. said, you know, there's such a great voice, there's such brilliant writing, fictionalize it. What do you reckon? Like it will give you so much more space to kind of tell the story in your own way. And so that's what they did. Um, right. And, you know, it's their words, it's their story, but it's, it's a, it is a different, like Jesse's story is different to Mendes' story. It's not the same. There yeah. are the same hooks, but it's a different story. And so what then Mendes was able to see is how they were able to like really be a writer, like really yes. be a writer, you know, and not just a writer that tells your story through memoir, but like has a magic, like an imaginative writer um and that's a different process and so they were able to do that and you can really see that on the page and being part of that and um process and that close um editorial i mean i i i i edit every book really closely Mm -hmm. Um, spend a lot of time with the structural edits so the structural edits are about character pace and plot basically like what is happening how is it happening and who is it happening to and I wasn't taught any of this formally I mean I'd literally rocked up at a publishing house at the age of 35 and then like and having been dyslexic I probably still am dyslexic I think you never not you're never not dyslexic just learnt tools um so I never thought I would be an editor I was always a big reader um but I remember when I had my bookshop and my assistant and um, Thomas would help me um, um, like would red pen everything that I wrote because I was just like, it was just all over the place. And over the years I'd look at, I'd get them to red pen it so I could actually see where my mistakes are were. And then I would rewrite it and rip, you know, Amazing. and that was just practice over years of like having, when I started having the bookshop. And so I wasn't taught how to structural edit. I just, I'm like, I've just read so much that, and I studied politics and anthropology and I'm just really obsessed with people. So I, and I've had lots of experiences so I can read something could be like, you know, what are we getting? Who are you telling the story for? What are we getting from this narrative? Do you need to pull back a bit or like, what is the shape? And like, honestly, it's such a huge pleasure to do that. Like, I love it so much because that's where the synapses are, right? That's where your synapses are like really working. They're just like taking away. They're like, this is, this is seeing something and then just seeing the bigger picture and zooming out and zooming in and going in and out and just being and, and making suggestions, but also having a distance from it because you're not having to do all the hard work. Like the writer has to do that. So for me, it's like, but you create a really strong bond with them. It makes me a better reader. I think it makes me a better parent. It makes me a better friend. It makes me a better partner. I think all of those things, because I'm just constantly asking questions about and 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 really wanting an answer of like you know what what is if something's happening then you know to a friend then I can kind of analyze it and be like and kind of see it as a narrative and think about the narrative of their life and figure out that arc and then help them through a question so Mm. yeah there's something in 
Um, so many of the creatives that I work with as a as a coach are dyslexic or dyspraxic. And I think there's something in that ability to join the dots between lots of seemingly disparate things to other people um, that I, I notice as a, as a pattern. And I don't know if you see patterns in things at all, Charmaine, but as you were talking there was something coming up for me about your ability to go beyond the words that are presented as an editor, that when you're getting a feel as to what is it that somebody's trying to excavate here, what is it that somebody's trying to bring forth and what are they resisting as well as what are they potentially able to say. So I got a sense of watching and observing you talk that there's there's a sense inside you that you're feeling more than the words that you're getting a sense that there's more to be brought forth i'm wondering if you could describe that sensation as you're reading because it's not just a formal quality is it yeah i i mean that is really interesting i haven't thought about it before but what i can connect it to is that um so my friend um i mentioned her earlier elizabeth day she wrote mm -hmm. a book called friendaholic and she chose five friends and i'm one of her friends um that she, we talk about our friendship and we talk about what friendship means to mm -hmm. uh, me what it means to her and she does that with five people and then she kind of looks at cultural social history of friendship throughout the book and my chapter is called The Art of Clarity. Mm. And it's because her thing with me is that what she sees in me is that I need to get to the point of clarification. Like I need to entirely have an understanding um, of what is happening and it needs to be very clear. Um, and that's difficult for some people because some people aren't very clear and they don't know the answers and they don't. And, you know, it's it's a lot for me when that happens. But part of that comes from like my own experiences of childhood of um you know on one hand being in a Jamaican family is really open and very celebratory and there's a lot going on and the others you know there's a lot of kind of secrets and lies or like hidden hidden stuff that's happening but because as children you're just always around you kind of pick up on it and not being told things and suddenly things are happening and suddenly you've got a new parent and you know yeah. It's just just that sort of generation of not really feeling like what happens affects you. And so I think, yeah, that clarity, I think that because I probably turned to literature as a safe space um, when I was younger from a really young age um, and just could be immersed in a whole world um, through each book, then I think that it's something that I actively look for. And so just trying to make sense of whether or not the narrative makes sense is really important to me. And yeah. in some ways it's like a partly my own personality and partly a homage to all the things that came before. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I think there's, uh, there's something in you being a truth seeker that I can recognise as um, I, I I grew up in a, um, a family that was I, my parents divorced when I was 11. And I think it, it's like some kind of relationship to fight, flight or freeze. You know, like if the, if you ever experience even micro traumas, whatever kind of trauma. And a lot, a lot of my um, creative clients could recognise that where you're looking for some kind of stable ground. 
you know, so it's a really subconscious thing. It happens. But if you come from some kind of broken home in any shape or form, very often we become mediators, we become people pleasers or we find, or we become truth seekers, people where we're looking for the reality of the situation, something where we know that we're on stable ground. So we get a really strong sixth sense for when people are bullshitting or covering things up or, and we know that actually that doesn't lead to good things. You know, when people or obfuscate or hide things or don't want to be themselves in front of others or mask things that it means that something else is going on. And so that interrogative, investigative quality, I can really understand how when that's put to good use, as in your instance, you know, that you can seek out what's not being said for the benefit of a greater good you know, that you've clearly put that skill and that that tool, if you like, to a greater benefit for the rest of us. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And you too. And you too, right? Like you're coaching, you're talking to people, you're constantly finding ways in which we can have, um, have conversations and create and space and learn, right? It's yeah. like um, you, you know, you share this with me. Um, and I think that's why we get on and why we, we sort each other out. Right. It's like, it's it, because not everybody does that, you know, I was saying yeah. recently I was at um, something where um, we'd just done a panel and we, it was quite a long panel. It was two hours and we were all kind of exhausted. And then afterwards people kept coming up to me and I sort of tried to hide. <laughs> um, yeah. I kind of felt like I'd said everything that I needed to say in that moment. But, you know, then people come up to you and then they're like, I've just got this thing about me that I need to ask you about, you know, and you're like, I've never met this person before. I do. And they want me to have an answer to their thing. And what then, you know, because they're in front of me, they're going to take the opportunity because that's what we've been told to do, especially as women, like take your space, yeah. take the opportunity, go for it, like grab the moment. But if I'm like, I... I, I've just done a two-hour panel and, <laughs> yeah. and then like actually maybe not come up to me and, al and also think like, is the question that you're asking something that's like mutually beneficial or is it just for you? Mm. Just asking me something to do with you because nine times out of 10, it is just to do with me. I'm um, sorry, them. And, yeah. and it's, and I, and also you know, I'm a really in-depth person. So like, if you just ask me a question, I can answer it. I can, I generally can answer most things that have been posed to me um, or I'll say, I'll go away and think about it and look at something up. But then you're just asking me to do some work. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I also don't have enough to go on. Like I haven't read your, I haven't read your manuscript. I haven't, you know, I don't, I don't know if you can be published because I haven't actually read it. And yeah. so I, I don't know. I can't answer that because many people have written things and many and like few people get published, even though there's loads of books. So I don't know the answer. But the fact that you're not like given that kind of space or grace and it's just a lot of taking and there's very few times where it's an exchange and where the exchange comes is where there's people who are more similar, who don't want something from you, but are just interested in that kind of cultural um cultural cerebral exchange because you're another person who might have some 
good ideas about anything. Yeah, uh, I think that's about being in community. And I think what I can see that you've done that really is being aware that if you are your authentic self and you show up honestly and openly and willing to go deep with the people that you are in community with, then it will create opportunities for all of you. And the more opportunities you create together, the more it will impact others. So I think there's something that you're you're sharing, which is is something that I try and teach in, in, in our community, which is this is not a meritocracy. If you just want to forge your own path, then you crack on, but it will be a lonely path. If you want to believe the myth that the artist is the lone genius, then crack on, but it is, it's a tough path. If you want to add value to others and walk alongside other people who are amazing, sparkly, brilliant, exciting people to be around and add value to them as often as possible, you will go super far because people love being around people that add value to them. And when we are in relation to each other, there is no hierarchy. You know, you have great ideas. I have great ideas. We have great ideas together. Let's come together and add value to each other. And then we're going to explode the universe together. Absolutely. But it has to be like, it needs to be an exchange rather than, of course, people have questions about things. And of course, people are trying to figure it out. It's just rather than sort of sitting with what's been said in the two hours or the hour that you've been on stage talking about this stuff, then kind of getting into the specificity and then not giving that person space to, you know, to kind of, it's, it's like, I'm not an Oracle, I'm a person. And there's only, there's only so much that you can physically give in one moment. And you need to be able to like, also just need to think about what was said, what the other people said, what did you learn? Yes. I love being on panels and learning from the other people on on the panel. Yeah. Mm. So I guess because you have such a generous way of moving through the world, it's fair to say that you can't support every single great author. You have to make some decisions, right? So how, what's the process for you personally and with your company now? for choosing who you give attention to as an editor and who you decide to publish? What's the process for that? Yeah. So one of the, it's one of the hardest things, right? So we used to have kind of more of an open submissions because I'd be like, writers can come from everywhere. But then what started happening is that that critical feedback wasn't taken very well by some people, you know, the few sometimes ruin it for the many. Um, and often, especially with governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then it was really hard because then I would say, you know, this isn't quite right because, da, 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 and it's like, because they wrote it, they just wanted it to be published and they weren't interested in critical feedback. And then they would say, you know, you said you were here for black people, or you said you were here for disabled people. You said that you were here for neurotypical people or queer people or whatever. And you're just not because mm. you didn't like my book. And I just was like, okay, this is just a lot. Because (laughs) this is why we have agents, because they are a buffer to that. They can take that 
um, they're much more thick skinned. It's literally their job to take the feedback and then give it back to the author in a constructive way. And it's not getting through. And if you don't have that buffer, it can just be hard to hear because you're just so excited that a publisher as being a gatekeeper, you know, the yeah. chief gatekeeper in the end, agents are one round and we're, you know, whatever we we acquire, we're absolutely going to publish. If we put an offer on something, that means that book is definitely going to be published. It might not be us, we might win um, the acquisition, but it it will definitely be published because there's interest and and our contracts mean that we're actually going to make something. Like that's what's so amazing about my job. When we say yes, we are going to see a book. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. Mm. So that's like what I'm working with. So now that I have multiple editors working on dialogue, the division, as opposed to myself being the only commissioner on the imprint, then it's really interesting because everybody has a different way of, you know, everyone has different taste, as it were. And but having um, a purpose of, you know, so our sort of um, slogan for the division is inspiration, innovation, and inclusion. So, is it is this an inclusive narrative? Mm. Uh, you know, does it? Does it have people across the breakfast society within it? Um, is it for people for the breakfast society within the breakfast society? Can we? Um, is it inspirational? Like, will it inspire? Will this narrative inspire other people, or is it just well written? But but actually, it's quite insular. Like, will but will it actually inspire people? And does it fit with our purpose? And then can we be innovative about the way in which we publish it and and inspirational? Can we? So it's basically like all of those things have to work at each stage. Is it the three eyes basically at each stage from from the reading to the publishing? Like, can we carry it across like a two year project? Um, can you see enough in it that you want to work with that you that you've got some ideas? So synapses already working in terms of the narrative. Like, can you do you have that? Um, and then do you have this sort of innate vision for it from reading where you're like, okay, I can really see this book. Like I'm publishing a book called Swift River next year um, by S.E.J. Chambers. And it just, as soon as I started reading it, it screams from the, from the publishers of the vanishing half. Like, you know, yeah. it just, it just says like, this is, I know exactly how to publish this book. It's a different book. Of course, yeah. it's an original book. Um, it's an original debut. It's about a young woman called Diamond whose father goes missing. She then is the only black woman in her town. She's um, plus size. She um, has having huge amount of kind of anxiety around her life. She's very poor. Her mother is white and um, and so kind of miss it. There's a lot of she's the only you know, she, she's just like missing a lot from her um, experience and really is very cognizant of that. And so she um the mother is trying to get money from the father's disappearance um because it's not clear if he died or if he disappeared and so you're you're spending eight months with diamond and she starts receiving these letters from her aunt who basically explains the family history and um the women in the family that came before over um a century basically and it's really beautifully written it's a really kind of profound novel and like even me just telling you, you can see why there's things about like the village and race and class mm. and 
structure and and access and all of those things like those are things that i'm really interested in so i can see how i would publish that um that's given me the image of uh, a really a beautiful river flowing seamlessly over pebbles through gorgeous landscape but with lots of tributaries um coming into it and so I wait to see the cover <laughs> oh it's going to be amazing uh, it sounds like you can see so many different things coming from this one force this one creative endeavor that actually opens up and unlocks lots of other opportunities from it so there's the one thing which is the creative uh, moment the book itself but there's then what are the other things that it's unlocking in people's minds eyes and what kind of opportunities or hope or magic would it create for other people so as i said earlier books for me are a really safe space um and created a safe space for me and i've got many memories of being in libraries and in bookshops and just kind of under trying to understand i felt very different as a child and I think that's partly because of my multicultural experience um, of often being the only black child, of being into um, at school um, or in my peer groups, um, listening to grunge, like being like really into Nirvana at, in the in the nineties when everyone else was like my cousins were all listening to um, a lot more like R and B and then and then garage and but. But then I started listening to a lot of hip hop and jungle. So then I kind of came back round to reggae and of course came back round to a lot of um, urban and black music. And so that is like probably what I listen to most now, but I just was like an alternative kid yeah. and I really enjoyed that. Um, but so books and stories were a way of me just sort of taking myself out of the world because it was quite noisy. Mm. And so then I could be by myself with my with the thoughts of the reader, not even my own thoughts of thought, the thoughts of the writer, the writer. Those thoughts of the writer were really important to me and me as a reader taking myself where I wasn't the protagonist in my own life story. And I think that's like, again, what I was going saying earlier about the key is that having a really big expressive personality does not mean that you always want to be the protagonist in like every single situation, right? Which is why, again, living away from the hub of publishing in my role is really important to me because I could be in London, I could be at the centre of everything, I could be out every night, I could be doing the most, but actually I miss most things because I spend three weeks of the, of the month in Berlin and one week in only one week in London. So if it's not happening when I'm not there, then I'm not going. And, you know, that shows like, if people thought I had this massive ego, we all have an ego, but it's like, it's not as big because otherwise I'd want to be in like the absolute, like I worked really hard to get here. And like, I would want to be in the center of it, but I don't, you know, yeah. I don't want to go to the ball. I'm okay with not going to the ball. I like to know that things are happening. I like to get advice, but I'm, I also, you know, because I like people, but I also, I'm okay with being away. And I think that thing of like, you know, the confidence that you have of not being the protagonist in in, in every story. Um, and also that trans like that transformative feeling of being seen and understood. And also for me, the third thing about reading um is um understanding that people have been through so much. 
Mm. you know, and so much more. So even when I was 16 and I left home and I was homeless and all of these things happened to me, like I don't have the same story as James Baldwin. Like I, mm. I don't have the same story as Dr. Maya Angelou. Like I don't have like that. And you know, when I read Beloved, like I was not an enslaved person. So that also gave me a lot of confidence to kind of, again, not, not being the protagonist, not being about me, like seeing, okay, yeah, this is bad, but it could be so much worse. Mm. <laughs> it could be so much worse. And aren't you so lucky that it isn't? I think that sort of the creative introverts that are listening, myself included, you know, there is something in getting to a stage where you know what it takes to be you, you know what it takes to be your creative best and giving yourself the best opportunity to deliver on that and knowing what are the contributing factors, you know, what feeds you, what lifts you up, what nourishes you, what gives you the space, the time, the energy to do you in the world is really important because so often we find out really late uh, don't we? we find out that actually at same, I live in a tiny village in the middle of the UK. I'm not at the throbbing heart of things anymore, but I spend all my days with amazing creative people, helping them to make a bigger impact in the world, to be braver, bolder, to do more adventurous things. And it's possible because I've managed to eliminate all the other things that might stop me from being able to do that by only choosing the very best context for myself to be the best at what I do. And so it strikes me that for your own creativity, whether that's being strategic, and let's not forget that being an MD, running a company is a creative endeavour, you know, that actually helping all of these incredible people put their work into the world takes a lot of creative thinking because you're doing something different that nobody's done before. So besides having that gorgeous library of books, <laughs> an amazing posse of people around you, you've got your network, you've got your community, you've got an amazing team that you've clearly put together and created a safe space for you all to be brilliant. What else do you do besides your family that feeds your creativity? What do you do that fills your creative cup? Okay. Um, well, I don't know how like PG we have to be, but like <laughs> I have a lot of sex. Like that's really important to me. Brilliant. I <laughs> like, love to hear that. That's fantastic. It's just like a very important part of like a release for me to be entirely focused on like my pleasure and the pleasure of somebody else. Love I think that. it's really kind of really important to do that, to spend time doing that and then not just be like, and to intentionally do that. Um, because I think there's so much pressure and to have that time of being really natural and creative is just really, really important. I don't think we talk about that enough, you know, that's yeah, like, I'm so life, glad but, you did. But I will say like, I don't know, I don't have any hobbies because I 
read all the time and I work with books like my like this is my life right so I'm like I don't go to the gym like I don't go to the gym <laughs> yeah. it's like, if you're having the- lots of sex you might not need to go to the gym <laughs> you know I used to go clubbing a lot I don't yeah. go clubbing really that much anymore I live in Berlin like you can only go clubbing for three days in a row you know like you can't just yeah. pop in and out of it it's like you've got to be you've got to be in it committed um I've got a Peloton. I haven't used it for months, months, maybe a year, two years um, since I was pregnant. And, um, you know, it's not like going to swim or going for dinner, whatever. Like, no, like for me, I'm really into like having a lot of sex, watching a lot of football and eating a lot of food. Like those are the things. Love that. It's like all very indulgent and um, takes a lot of focus. Like when you're really into something like football, you're just like, you know, you're, it's nice. Like, plus you're watching the game and you're watching the strategy and you're watching the players and you're, you're, you're collating loads of knowledge and also the other team and where they are in the league and all of that stuff. And my team won yesterday. So I'm very happy. Obviously I support Arsenal. Um, <laughs> and then food is just because it's interesting, you know, that's where you get to break bread with people. That's where you mm. really get to share and like shoot the shit with other people is always around food. Um, and then sex is just like very intimate and very private, but like, you just really have to make a lot of time for it because it's really, I don't know, it's just really important. Like where it's like, this is a bit where like a lot of other stuff we've made up as human beings. Like when I think about those three, they're my three hobbies, then we all need to eat. We all need to have sex and we all need to like partake in a sport like that, a community cultural like sport thing like that's part of who we are when I look back at sort of you know anthropologically at like the core of human beings the rest of it is like we've just kind of created it Mm. you know work has always been there we've always had to do work we've always done child rearing um and but but the rest of it is really like we've created this really we didn't have to commute. Like we created this sort of really crazy way of living. Uh, we didn't have to go and travel to other countries and, um, you know, go on holiday and like, mm. it's like we just do so much, but we've always sort of watched each other. We've always read, you know, we've always, we've always shared stories, we've always broken bread and we've always, and we've always had sex and that's how humans develop. Right. So I'm just like, I'm just going back to. Oh, do you know, Charmaine, I love you so much. I just love the fact that it's it really is important for us creatives to acknowledge that we need, it's not just our minds that need nourishing, but we being intentional about what we do with our bodies, you know, with and for each other. And being okay as a woman to say, this is what I need, this is what I want, this is what I like, that's really important. But secondly, also to acknowledge that as a creative, to be your best thinking self, you need to look after the body. You need to care for the body. And that means being with others, being in community with others and connecting to pleasure and joy. And that commitment, I love your commitment and intentionality to joy. Me too, me too. I love it. And like, it's also why I don't sweat it, right? And why there's a confidence, especially when you've had three children and you've carried twins in your 40s, where you're just like, you know, where your body is changing and developing in different ways. And there's like lumps and bumps and scars and stuff. And you're just like, where is it? And then you're just like, it, 
listen, it doesn't, none of that stuff matters. So, you know, and because I can have that confidence, like in having that confidence, then it also means that I'm not sweating stuff mm-hmm. in 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 my work either, because I'm really confident about who I am and the decisions. And I'm not just second guessing and I'm not thinking like, you know, who is doing what, what does that mean? And, you know, it's like the, the, the competitive thing. I'm just like, I'm just like getting on with it and being very intentional. And because I, I have that, I have that self-belief um, I have that self-belief and that confidence because I'm able to, because I also indulge myself and I know that whatever I'm doing, it's like, it's fine. Like it's good. Like it's, you're coming from, a, you're coming from a good place with it. And so therefore it has to be, it has to be, it has to be really good. But then it also can be brilliant because you've given yourself the space to kind of figure all of that stuff out. Yeah. And, and you're including so many people and you're not alone, right? You're like, you're just not alone. So yeah, I, for me, that's like, I don't know. <laughs> Such an inspiration, Charmaine. I just, I'm seriously, there will be people listening and just like, hell yes. I'm with Charmaine. <laughs> I've never said that before. As oh, well, well I'm so like, glad that you felt say? able like, to. Do you know? I don't know. I was just like, I was trying to think of a hobby. And I was like, <laughs> that's the best like, hobby anyone can have. What do you Seriously. Doing? And it's like taking a whole weekend, taking the time and just, yeah, it's just really relaxed. Like, I find it very, very relaxing. So, yeah. It's brilliant. So, we are coming to a, a close. You've given so much of your wonderful, generous time. Thinking back to that 16-year-old that left home, yeah. now knowing what you know now, oh what advice would you give them? You know, I'd tell her to keep going. I'm going to cry. I mean, she was so unhappy. Mm. She was so unhappy. I was so unhappy. And... Yeah, you know, it's like you fucking did it, you know, like you did what you needed to do and you were right. And you were right that it would be better for you. And even though it was really, really, really hard, then like you're right. You I was right to go and I was right to forge my own path. And, you know, I also over the years have seen with my friends, especially when everyone went to university and then were figuring out what they wanted to do. And afterwards, and like, you know, I didn't have parents, my parents completely estranged, still don't talk to me. I've never met my family. Um, You know, I could see that there was like a lot of burden from my friends of expectation of what their parents wanted from them. And because they'd given so much and I when I was in my twenties, I realized that I'd sort of escaped that burden because nobody had any expectation that I would do anything. Mm. Um, they thought I would just be homeless and get on drugs and like, you know, have lots of kids. And I don't know, they just thought I'd just become a crackhead prostitute with loads of kids. Like that was, that was the level of expectation if I didn't live the life that they wanted me to. Um, and you know that it's 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 so far away from anything that I could have been, um, and this idea that it's like, but I hit really rock bottom because I didn't have any money and I did sleep rough, mm. and also you know like sometimes I find it really hard to go into Soho because there's still a lot of people that were in hostels with me when I was sixteen who still live on the street, 
That's really tough. You know, when I'm going into like a champagne reception at Soho House and they're like sitting mm. outside um, begging, like it's horrific to see that. Like it hits me really hard, obviously. Mm. Um, and seeing how young people have been manipulated and abused within the care system, how the governments have not funded um, young people to get back into, you know, so you're not allowed to go into school. You're not allowed to go to school when you're homeless. You're not allowed to claim benefits. In order to be in a hostel, you have to claim housing benefit, but you can't claim housing benefit and get an education. It's a massive flaw. So Mm -hmm. only because I didn't tell my school that I was um, claiming benefits, that I was allowed to go to school and and the registration isn't linked up. But if you're coming from Manchester or Edinburgh or somewhere else, you're not going to know that. And so I spent a lot of time also trying to help people in the hostels, like figure out the paperwork and do all of that stuff. But, you know, it's tough without any family support and without any money Mm. in central London. And so, yeah, I would say to 16-year-old me, like, I'm really proud of you that you kept going. Mm. Uh, And we are so, so happy that you did, Charmaine, because your contribution to the world, let alone to creativity and publishing, is just off the chart. You're an extraordinary woman and an extraordinary creative. So thank you for taking the time with us today and for being so open and honest. I know that you will have touched the hearts of so many people today. And as a final parting gift to them, I wonder what words of uh, inspiration would you offer to the, the creatives listening today? So. I would say, like, really know yourself and be intentional and unapologetic, but also do listen, you know, like know who's got your back and know that people do want the best. And so take that kind of exchange, that dialogue, um, Mm. take that dialogue on and grow from it, um, even though it's all, even though it can be really hard, but but also look for look for the gaps and and look at where you can you can you can make a difference love that dialogue and making a difference we're here for that <laughs> and if people want to find out more about you Shame, where would they look um so if you look on our socials we've got um dialoguebooks.co.uk is our website and um dialogue um at dialogue publishing um on twitter and instagram That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's such a pleasure and a privilege, Charmaine. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. (laughs) 